So I'm the other Kyle, and I'm reading the verse today. Uh, it's Matthew 22. Uh, the same day Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second, and the third down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Yeah. Yep. Good morning. Uh, before we break in this morning and get going, uh, I just want, Marty, can you stand up? And Gabby, everybody say hi to Marty and Gabby. Um, so Marty is part of our uh, global missions team here at Anthem, and him and his daughter Gabby are actually headed to India this week. Uh, Marty works with an organization called Send Hope, and uh, it's based out of Boise, and he sits on the board of directors for that. And Send Hope is an organization that has orphanages, they provide medical relief, they have education, there's a bunch of amazing things that they do in India, and there's ways to like financially sponsor a child, sort of like Compassion, where you can help um, give the child, provide for the child's needs in the orphanages that they're in. And so Marty and Gabby are going to spend how much time in India? Two weeks. Uh, and so we wanted to pray for them as they leave and send them off. So if you guys would maybe extend a hand if you're around them, why don't you lay hands on them, as long as Gabby's cool with people touching her. And uh, <laughs> let's just pray for him. Jesus, we thank you so much for the work that you're doing in India. We thank you for this open door, God, that uh, the borders are open and they can go. And I pray, Jesus, for just the power of God to be with them. Lord, I pray that you would move mightily in and through uh, Marty and Gabby and the team that's going. God, I pray that you'd open their eyes to see the need. God, I pray that you'd continue to burden their hearts for the people. I pray that this trip, God, these two weeks would just be life-altering, life-changing for them, for Marty and for Gabby. And I pray, Jesus, for people to come to know you. I pray for the sick to be healed. God, I pray for Send Hope and the initiatives they have going on over there that you continue to um, fund and provide for these, mission, uh, the, these missions, God. And I just am asking Jesus in all of this that in two weeks when they come back that they will have a different perspective, a renewed perspective, and just that their hearts would swell with the work that you're doing in other, other places and bring back good word for us, Lord. And so we, we thank you for them and we pray your blessing upon them in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. Awesome. Well, cool. Matthew 22, verses 23 to 33. If you guys have a paper Bible, why don't you open it up? follow along with us this morning. How many of you guys feel like we're getting to a point in scripture where you kind of get kicked in the face every time you come here on Sunday morning? We're going to follow suit with that this morning. So we're just going to let the, 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 the word do its thing. Um, continuing our, our study through the book of Matthew, we've been going verse by verse through the book of Matthew for the last two years. And we've seen over the last few weeks as Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem during Holy Week, we're literally watching the last week of Jesus's life play out and Jesus enters into the city and, and then what's he do he clears the temple which we talked about a few weeks ago he flips some tables we see these religious leaders coming to Jesus and, and pushing back against him and they're rejecting him and then we see these interactions that Jesus is having with these religious factions the religious elite of Jesus's day and, and essentially these interactions are what is going to get Jesus killed in the end um in the eyes of the religious elite that Jesus is pushing back against, Jesus is a threat to them. He, he, he threatens their system, um, he, he threatens their power, and so they're pushing back against Jesus because they don't like what he's doing. And so Jesus comes preaching this new way. Jesus comes preaching this whole new kingdom, which meant that the systems that they had upheld and invested their lives into and thought were the way were basically about to be overturned through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so last week, 
We talked about the interactions that Jesus was having with two specific groups of religious people, the Pharisees and the Herodians, we talked about last week. And so today, we're going to have, we're going to have a conversation about one other group that Jesus is going to have an interaction with um, in this passage, referred to as the Sadducees. And what we need to understand ultimately about this interaction is the theology that's guiding the interaction that Jesus is having with these people, and primarily this whole concept of life after death. What, what do you do with the resurrection? And the, the idea that there is life after death. And it's this concept that literally is as old as humanity, right? This concept can be traced back through as many cultures as have been discovered in history. Um, everybody has some form of belief with regards to the resurrection or life after death. And so, for example, um, I was reading this week about one of the pharaohs who was, his, his tomb was sealed almost 5,000 years ago, and when the tomb was discovered recently, what they found next to the tomb was this solar boat that was laid next to him while he was entombed, and this boat was entombed literally so that he could sail to the heavens once he died, so that he would have access to the heavens. The, the ancient Greeks used to place a coin on the mouth or the eyes of those that they buried so that they would have currency to pay the toll to cross the river of death into the land of the immortal. Um, the, the ancient Norsemen used to bury their warriors with their horses so that they would have something to ride in the next world. In, in ancient Greenland, they would often bury children with their dogs so that they would have a guide in the next life. In, in Buddhism, in, in Hinduism, and for many today who, who really don't know maybe what they believe exactly, reincarnation for some seems like the right fit. But at, at the very least, even for those who consider themselves spiritual but maybe not religious, most people hold to some kind of indefinable sort of spiritual realm or reality that exists after this life. Like people are clinging on to something. Very few people today hold to the idea that we just cease to exist after this life is over that we just go away. And so life after death is this concept that, that continues to capture us, and, and really, it makes us think. It, we, we contemplate it often in this life, and it was no different in ancient Israel, right? It, it was no different where we pick up in this text this morning. The ancient Israel ha had very firm beliefs about what would happen uh, with regards to life after death, and for good reason, because their scriptures, literally the Old Testament, has a ton to say about life after death. For example, Psalm 16, verses 9 through 10, the psalmist writes this. He says, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Psalm 49, 15 says, But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Psalm 73, 24 says, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. So in, in, ancient, in ancient Israel, they had more than just an idea about like some sort of disembodied spiritual existence. They, they, they believed, as Christians do today, about like a physical, bodily resurrection after this life. And they believed that because of places like Daniel 12, which says, but at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And physical resurrection leading to life after death was a major part of Israel's theology across the board, with the exception of one group, this group that we're talking about this morning. And this is why this, this passage in Matthew opens by saying this in Matthew 22, verse 23. The same day, Sadducees came to him, and then it says, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question. And so the same day, meaning it's like Wednesday probably, Jesus clears the temple on probably Tuesday. By Friday, Jesus is going to go to the cross. Earlier in the day, like we studied last week, the Pharisees come to him with this political question that was sort of meant to undermine Jesus. And then later the same day, the Sadducees come to try to take a shot and try to trip him up as well. So a little bit of background on the Sadducees. It's really interesting. This small group of people, the Sadducees, 
They, they stood out in ancient Israel because they believed that the scriptures didn't teach about a physical resurrection. They didn't believe in a bodily resurrection. And the primary reason that they thought that is because the Sadducees only gave authority to the first five books of the Bible. They only gave authority to the Torah. And the rest of the Old Testament to them was sort of like a commentary, right? It, it, it wasn't authoritative. It was kind of a commentary that they could read. Um, and in their mind, the, the Torah, the, the, the first five books of the, the Bible, had nothing to say about resurrection in, in their, from their perspective. And so the Sadducees were sort of this ruling upper class of their day. They were very wealthy. They were this small group made of really wealthy individuals. And at this point in time, um, even the chief priest was a Sadducee. And, and the majority of the Sanhedrin, like the governing authorities, were Sadducees. And so the Sadducees were not liked by people. For one, they had different theology from everybody else. Um, but the Sadducees were also buddy-buddy with Rome, and so people didn't like the fact that they were kind of snuggled up next to Rome. And ever since Rome had sort of become, began to occupy their land, the, the Sadducees began to do really well financially. They became extremely wealthy because they were in charge of running all of the temple concessions. I mean, you look at when Jesus goes to clear the temple, who's, who's he frustrated with? He's frustrated with the ones running these temple Concessions. So they were the ones in charge of the money changing. They were the ones taking the, 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 the taxes for going into the temple. Um, they were buying and selling animals. And Rome basically allowed the Sadducees to keep all of the fees and the concessions that they made. So they became very wealthy. So the Sadducees were super happy with arra this arrangement that they had with Rome. And then in addition to all of this, uh, the, the ancient historian Josephus tells us that they were savage when they held trial over the people and handed out their judgments, that life was insanely easy for the Sadducees. And they had no problem making it insanely difficult for everybody else. So their, their power also, it's interesting, is closely tied to the temple. So you see that um, the, the Sadducees, after AD 70, when the temple's destroyed in Jerusalem, there's really no note, there's no record of the Sadducees after that point. They, the, the group sort of ceases to exist because everything they were known for and they stood for existed in the temple. Once the physical temple is gone, there's no need for this group of people, and then they're kind of gone at that point. And so, um, uh, and, and then the last time we hear about the Sadducees is in, is in Acts 23, where Paul uses the, their disbelief in resurrection to sort of pit them against the Pharisees and begin this fight between the two groups to get himself out of this tight spot. And so you can go home, you can read Acts 23, see this for yourself, but this is sort of a setup for you to understand who the Sadducees are. And that's where we're at today. That, that's a little bit about the Sadducees. So these men are fuming. They're, they're, they're literally ticked off about what Jesus had done in the temple the day before. He, he's cleared the temple. And they're, they're now ready to just try to humiliate Jesus in front of all of the people but instead of coming to Jesus with a political question like the Pharisees just did earlier in the day, they come to Jesus and they bring a question that's theological in nature. They're, they're going to try to trip him up in theology. So let's jump into the question. Chapter 22, verse 24. They say, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So notice that they're quoting Moses, right? That's because the, the, the Torah was literally their bread and butter. It's what they put all, it's the basket they put all their eggs into. And so to understand the question that they're asking, you sort of have to know um, the law that it is that they just referenced, right? They, they pull from Deuteronomy 25 with this statement where Moses gave this law that was called the Leverite Law. And the Leverite, Leverite is a word that literally means brother-in-law. It was the brother-in-law law. And the law essentially said that if a man marries a woman and has no married child before he dies, then that man's brother has to marry the widow and raise up the children in the name of his dead brother. It was to keep the family lineage going on, to keep the name. 
So God gave that law to Israel because at that point in history, the whole focus was really on preserving the 12 tribes of Israel, right? So if you know the biblical story, you know that God made this promise to a guy named Abraham. He said, through Abraham, I'm going to bless the whole world. Like, like through, through Abraham, I'm going to bring the Messiah into the world. And so preserving that line was really important. So this is where that law comes from, to preserve the lineage. And if you remember the story of Ruth, this is what we see in Ruth's story. When Boaz uh, marries this widow, Ruth, and raises up a child in the name of her dead husband, that child's lineage is directly connected to the birth of Jesus. And so this is several generations later, so that's the law. So here's the question, verse 25. Now there were seven brothers among us. This is what they say to Jesus. There were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and had no offspring left, um, and had no offspring left his wife sorry, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother, sorry. So to the second, and the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, down to the seventh. And after them all, the woman died. Man, this woman, you know, she's really been through it. In the resurrection, he says, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. This is the question that, that they, he, they're using to try to trip Jesus up. And for them, this moment is sort of like the mic drop moment, like boom, take that one, you know? Like, how are you gonna combat that, Jesus? Like, they, they've got him pinned. There, there's no way for Jesus to respond. I mean, you can imagine after so many years of these Sadducees fighting on this point, specifically with the Pharisees, they would have brought this question up time and time again to, to all the leading rabbis to try to stump them on this question, and it seemingly looks like maybe they've got Jesus. Like, Maybe there's no way around this, and it's sort of the, the first, century, first century equivalent of like, could God create a rock so big that he can't even lift it, right? Boom, take that. And they think it's in the bag, Be, because to these guys, the, the resurrection was an absurd idea. The idea of a bodily resurrection was absurd, and the question that they're asking Jesus sort of demonstrates the absurdity of what they think about the resurrection. And so I want to stop here for a minute because you need to understand one primary thing about this question that he's asking. And that's this, Anthem, is that this question isn't necessarily about the resurrection. Like, th this text in Matthew isn't necessarily about resurrection. Jesus is going to give some more information in a few minutes here about the resurrection, and that's awesome. But it's not Matthew's point. What's going on here is that the Sadducees are hell-bent on discrediting Jesus, period. They're trying to pin him into a corner. They're trying to trip him up. Jesus was a threat to them. Jesus was literally a threat to the lives that they had built. Jesus was a threat to their success. They wanted to cut him down. And so what do they do? Like, without even realizing it, they, look, they looked the God that they claimed to worship dead in the face, and they used their theology to reject him. What an interesting thing. What's theology? What, what is it? Theology is literally the study of who God is. And they used their theology, what they believed about God, to actually reject God. Isn't that crazy? They basically had reduced God down to their theological systems, their constructs, their, their structures, their arguments, the, the ideas that, that they could package and could sort of use as a weapon against Jesus. And that's what this is about. Like, God had become little more than like a formula that they intended to use for their advantage. They, they refused to let go of the formula that had built them a ton of wealth, that had given them a bunch of power and given them a bunch of esteem and prestige. And they held really tight to their theology, and in the midst of doing it, they actually missed the Savior. They, they had shrunk God down so he could fit into the categories that they had made for God. And they've done it for so long now that they couldn't even recognize him anymore. And that's why when God came to them in the flesh, they hated what it was that they saw. And I would love to tell you that this is just a problem for the Sadducees, and they're the only ones that deal with this. But as we work through these texts, I need us to begin to align and understand how we fit into the same categories that Jesus is pushing back against with these specific groups. Today, specifically the Sadducees. 
Because this is actually our issue as well. Like how many of us in this room have reduced what it means to know God, to walk with God, to love God, to just merely ideas about God? We do that all the time. Like how many of us have gotten completely hung up on theological constructs, but know little to nothing about a vibrant, ongoing, day-to-day, moment-by-moment relationship with the creator God who actually came for you and I. You see, we, we do this all the time. We're really good at packaging up these little boxes. And we have all kinds of names for these systems that we've developed, right? So we've got Calvinism, and we've got Arminianism, and we've got cessationists, and we've got continuationism, and we've got eschatology and ecclesiology and missiology. We've got all these different perspectives, and we divide over things even like baptism, and we divide over things like worship. I mean, the list goes on and on for us to figure out what are the things, the constructs we've created that actually have divided the church. And anything that we can sort of package up and anything that we can slap a label onto, we do it. Align with this perspective. Align with that perspective. And then we begin to tell others, this is who God is. He's in my package. He's my brand of Christianity. No more room for discussion. And you see this taking place. So hear me on this, because this is important to me. Like, I love studying who God is. I love theology. I, I don't... I don't think there's a more important thing that every Christian needs to give themselves to than studying the word of God and what the Bible actually says about who God is. It's important. It's important for us to talk and think and worship God. And and some things are going to require some categories and labels and discussion and debate and that's all great. Like, it's totally fine to engage in those conversations. And I think it's actually fun to have those conversations. But here's the issue. Is that it's way too easy to confuse what we know about God without actually knowing God. It's so easy for us to fall into the trap of having a bunch of information about him and not actually knowing him. Him knowing us. It's way too easy to confuse doctrine with relationship and information with transformation like I struggle with this the it seems to be the older I get the more clearly I want my box defined the older I get the more I want to know where which side do I stand on which brand do I uphold and what I realized is the day I came to faith in Jesus none of that mattered what mattered was engaging the living God that he saw me and I knew him There was something about that. So for some people, God has literally been reduced to the one who makes them feel better. And and that's their whole arrangement. Like, they literally came to church one day, they went to a conference or something like that, that they heard somebody preach this message, they decided to come to Jesus so that they could feel better, and that was the construct. And then that was where it stopped for them, is they continued seeking the moments and the experiences where they could just feel something, they could feel better. For others, God's been reduced to sort of like an insurance policy in their life, right? That, that you're fully convinced, convinced that your future belongs to him, but the present is actually yours. I do what I want now, but I'm convinced that I've got an eternal resting place. And it's super common to just reduce God down to the role of like the sidekick in the sidecar of the motorcycle, right? I'm the one driving this thing. Jesus, can you just come hang out with me and make sure that I get through okay? As cliche as it sounds, like it's not like Jesus take the wheel. It's like, I'll take the wheel, you sit passenger. You know what I mean? Just give me instructions. And maybe this is the most common label that we slap on God, actually, is this idea of God being some sort of divine way scale for us, right? That we think that this whole thing's about appeasing God, right? So we try, to, uh, we try not to drink too much too often, right? We, we, we try to keep our language a little bit cleaner than most people, and so we, we, we do this, and then we feel good about ourselves because we've done a little bit better than most. 
But if you have any thoughts whatsoever, like any ideas about God at all, then you've developed a theology, like you have a construct. You believe something about who it is that God is. And the only question is whether it's good theology or bad theology, honestly. Do you believe the right things about who God is? What, does it align with scripture or not? And based on our theologies that we've developed, I wonder how many of us in this room would literally reject Jesus if he showed up today. Because our constructs don't allow for him to be part of that. So it's easy to read these texts and be like, stupid Pharisees, the dumb Sadducees, can they be any more stupid than that? And yet, I really find a lot of solace reading through them and trying to figure out where my heart and my life aligns with some of the constructs that they had built, because I'm guilty of it. I'm guilty of it. And as corny as, or cliche as it sounds, what if Jesus showed up today and, and literally began to threaten the lives that we've built? Like, if our theology is that God exists to make us feel better, then, then what are we going to do when God calls us to do things that make us feel far worse? How do you deal with that? If only the future belongs to God, then what are we going to do when we find, our, find that, that he sort of demands the present from us? That it's not just about the future, it's actually about the here and now as well. Like, if God is sort of this divine weighing scale, then what will we do when we find uh, that, that our very best works, like our most righteous deeds, the best things that we can do are literally nothing? What will we do with that? They're worthless. So let's move from the question here to the answer, because as Jesus answers this question, he points out two really serious issues with them and their theological systems that, that I want us to see this morning. Look at verse 29. But Jesus answered them, and what did he say? You're wrong. <laughs> like, that easy. You're wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Like, Jesus doesn't beat around the bush, right? He just says it like it is. You're wrong. What's really interesting about this word wrong in the Greek is this word, it's, it's this word planeo in the Greek. And it's the same word that we use to get the English word planet. It means to cause to wander or to lead astray. So Jesus is literally saying to them, you're causing yourselves to wander. You're, you're leading yourselves astray. You're living in this sort of alternate planet, this alternate world, an alternate reality that you've sort of created for yourself, and it has nothing to do with the truth anymore. And that's how important their theology of God is. And it's the same idea you see in Jude chapter 13, where false teachers are called wandering stars. We can believe whatever we want to about God, but what we have to understand is that not all belief is equal, right? That, that, that there, there's right and, and there's literally wrong. Like, it doesn't matter how strongly you feel about it, there are some people who believe what's true about God, and there's others whose beliefs about God are actually dead wrong, and Jesus is calling this out. Today, especially in the United States, we're extremely sensitive about offending other people, aren't we? And we don't want to do that, and so we don't want to offend anybody else, and so spirituality and religion specifically are things that become very personal to us. And so they're sort of off the table. Like, how many of you guys have family gatherings, and before the gatherings, like, we're not talking politics or religion, right? There's these two things we're just not going to talk about in family settings. They're off the table. My challenge to you is that you honestly need to get over it. Like, talking about these things is actually good, and as Christians, again, we need to get over it. We have to be able to sort of lovingly enter in these conversations with people, because there's way too many Christians out there preaching and living in anti-gospel that doesn't align with the scriptures. There are way too many people out there that are saying what's not true about God versus what's actually true about God. And we can't just sit back and go, well, it's okay, it's their own truth. No, they're actually informing other people's ideology about who God is. Like, we should step in in those moments and say, whoa, that doesn't align with the word of God. Like, let's go back to the scriptures. 
So he says to the Sadducees, you're wrong. And then he gives two reasons why in verse 29, the second part. These are the kickers for me. He says, because you know neither the scriptures nor what? The power of God. What does Jesus say? Jesus says that there will come a day when you will not worship on this mountain or that mountain, but you will worship me in what? Spirit and in truth. Like, Jesus says you, you don't know the scriptures, obviously. You, you've taken them out of context. And you obviously don't understand the power of God. And these are two things that the Sadducees would have actually claimed to know everything about, Right? And Jesus comes along and says, you don't know any of it. Like, you've wandered into some sort of alternate reality of your own because you have no idea what it is the scriptures say, and you don't know the power of God that you claim to walk with. And so take these one by one. Drop down to verse 31 for a second. He says, and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? Now, just so you know, whenever you hear Jesus say things like, have you not read? Jesus is kind of being sarcastic, right? Like, have you not read this? And I love the fact that Jesus is a sinless person and still practices sarcasm, right? So this is sort of Jesus taking a shot, like shots fired, right? Verse 32, he says, I am, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so Jesus quotes from Exodus 3, verse 6. And that's really important to remember because the Sadducees only held the Torah, the the first five books of the Bible, as authoritative, right? So they demanded an answer from Moses. So Jesus gives them an answer from Moses. I am the God of of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. So if you're wondering what this has to do with the resurrection, it's sort of all wrapped up in this present tense. He says, I am. I am. God said in Exodus 3, 6, um, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And so by this point, when God said that, that, that Abraham, Isaac, and, 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 and he was the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob, they were like stunned. Think about what, what, what he, the, the statement he's making. Like, these men, when, when God said this in Exodus 3, these men were long gone, right? They were buried in the ground, and God comes along and he says, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Jacob. Like, some, some scholars put it like this, that Jesus argued for the resurrection from the tense of a verb in the Old Testament. I mean, that's how committed Jesus was to the word of God being the actual words of God. He, he bases his whole argument on the fact that God didn't say, I was the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. But he says what? I am. Current. Present. One scholar said, God isn't worshipped by corpses. He's not worshipped by those who don't exist or have ceased to be. And it's why Jesus adds in our text, he's not the God of the dead, but he's the God of the living. Like, Jesus just said that. He said something that the wisest rabbis in Israel up to this time were not capable of doing. Like, he literally just blows their theology to smithereens. Like, he schools these guys in front of all their buddies. And what we're really seeing here is the the, the total inadequacy of the categories and formulas that lead us to God. Like, they just don't work. The Sadducees knew Exodus 3.6. They knew the tense of the verb there. They knew it. They, They memorized it. They could have recited this passage, but every time they looked at it, what they did was they sort of laid their own preferences over the top of it. And so when they went to God's word, they went to it to affirm their theology and their systems and their paradigms, and they went to it so they could justify um, their previously held beliefs and the lives that they had built for themselves. They used God's word to validate themselves. We call that cherry-picking scripture, right? We're so guilty of it. How many of you guys can name off like a dozen passages in the Bible right now, right? And you'll use them in all contexts. 
Never going back to it and saying, like, what was the context that I was spoken in? Am I, am I taking that out of context? I mean, what the Sadducees are doing is taking a passage totally out of context to use it as leverage to justify their position to then nail Jesus on something. What an evil and wicked thing that they're actually doing to God himself. And so they opened up the word of God. They read it in order to justify themselves. And I hope that we get this, right? Because in coming to the word of God that way, they actually refuse to let the word of God push back on them. They won't allow the word of God to challenge them. I mean, they're the teachers of Israel, but they refuse to let the word of God actually challenge them at all. We know that the word of God is life, that the words that God has given us are meant to be the food by which we are sustained on. But you can't extract life from the word of God as long as you try to live your life this way. It's impossible, like, because for us to receive the life that God has for us here, the words of God actually have to challenge the way we live, don't they? They have to sharpen us. They have to have power. They have to correct us. They have to change our direction. Like, and at times, the word of God is gonna hurt. When we're walking with God, sometimes hearing what it is he has to say is not the most easy thing. But how many of us go to God's word, just like the Sadducees? We go to his word so that we can affirm what it is that we already know, and we aren't willing to allow his word to challenge us, to press in on us, to flat out tell us at times where it is that we're wrong. And so when we resist God's correction, we actually cut ourselves off from the life that he wants to give you. Like we've made a deliberate decision to not allow the life of God coming through his scriptures to challenge us where we're at, to speak to us and to guide us. I came to Jesus at 17 years old. And, um, or sorry, I, I prayed by the bed at like six with my mom. And my mom would tell you that I came to Jesus at that point. At 17, it was like a mile marker moment in my life where I felt like I really surrendered my life to the Lord. And what happened at that point was the word of God became real to me. I, didn't, I no longer read it because it's what my parents told me to do. I no longer read it because it's what the youth pastor said. I no longer cherry-picked the best verses that I liked that made me feel good anymore. It was like I wanted to read the word of God in its totality to allow it to mold me and shape me. I believe that God was speaking through it and that there was something for me as a follower of Jesus to be shaped and molded by his very words that come to life off of these pages. And it was at 17 years old that I can, it was like the first time that I can actually remember God pushing back on me. And my journey since 17, to be honest with you, has been taking verses that I've heard spoken in so many different contexts over my life and then reading them for myself in the context that God put them in the word of God and going like, what the heck? (laughs) That verse is there? Like, I don't even understand that because I was taught it like this. And then when you read it for yourself and you read it within context, you start to understand God's real purpose and intention for his word. And so the, the, the Sadducees, that, like us, the, the, they sort of take the word out of context and what they want to use it for is to validate their position. And so this is what the Sadducees were doing. So they grabbed this passage from Deuteronomy about marriage and what to do when a brother who is married dies, that this passage that had no intention of speaking to the resurrection, and in fact, they don't even believe in the resurrection, and then they state this passage, and then they use it to pin Jesus to validate their, their, their position with regards to the resurrection. And it wasn't just that they didn't know the scriptures, because Jesus goes on to say something else. He says, you also don't know the what? The power of God. Here's what he says about that in verse 30. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Like, there's a bunch of stuff here that we're probably not going to be able to get into this morning. But when, when Jesus said this, they, they, they didn't know the power of God. What he meant was that their ideas about resurrection 
sort of revealed this very small, weak, inadequate view of who God is, right, and what God's doing. Like the Sadducees couldn't imagine that God would resurrect them with so much power that their ideas about marriage and their laws wouldn't even matter anymore because of the power of God at play. They couldn't imagine that. I mean, their ideas about resurrection, which we don't have a time to necessarily get into today, but they didn't allow for that. They, they couldn't imagine God getting around this problem, and that's why they thought that their question was sort of foolproof, because they thought uh, that, that what they could see around um, them was the fullness of what God could and would do. But Jesus says to them, no, that's actually not the case. You're actually wrong. You haven't even experienced the fullness of who God is. You actually deny his scriptures and you deny his power. You've got it all wrong. And God's not bound by the limitations that you want to put on him. He's not going to recreate us exactly the same way that you are now. That's the power of the resurrection, right? Anybody want to take this body with them eternally? I don't. This body hurts. This mind has a lot of things trapped in it that I, that I wish I hadn't seen or experienced. There's pain. There's grief. There's all these things that are wrapped up into this body. I don't want to take that body. The power of God is that you are given what? A new body in the resurrected life. Something that knows not the pain, the grief, the hurt, the fears, the word, like the things that you've experienced, it just does not know that. It's a new body in a new place. Surrendered to King Jesus eternally. What an amazing thing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that there's one kind of body for animals, another kind of body for humans. There's celestial bodies and there's heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. And when God gives us these glorified bodies, they're literally going to blow these bodies away. Like there's nothing like them. And Jesus goes on to say that on top of that, there's not going to be marriage in heaven. He says, we'll be like angels, is what he says. He doesn't say, we'll be angels, but he says, we'll be like angels. What are angels? They're eternal beings. That one day we will be these eternal beings. One scholar says, there won't be marriage or procreation in heaven because the people of God will finally be fixed and no one will ever die. I mean, you really look at the goal of procreation and marriage on this earth is marriage is often paralleled with our relationship with Jesus, right? We walk out marriage as a picture of our relationship with the Lord. Like, it demonstrates something to the world, but there's something between a husband and wife that is like, a wife, like, like Jesus with his church. And then you look at procreation, like we have this opportunity to like have kids, and I'm not saying like go have 10 of them necessarily, but what I'm saying is like, we get to populate this earth with a bunch of beings that are created in the image of God. What an amazing, amazing gift that God has given us to be able to do that. But one day, that won't necessarily matter. One day, his power will literally be everywhere. And everything that we've built apart from Jesus will actually be destroyed. I mean, for, for those who've never imagined that, that God has this much power, it's going to be a real shock when the end shakes down. But God also wants to fill us with this power. I mean, you go into the book of Acts, and it says, what? That the Spirit will come upon you. We, we see that the Spirit is power, that the same power that resurrected Jesus, dynamis is the word, the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead actually resides within you and I. Those who are surrendered, their lives are given to Jesus Christ. There's something about this power of God. And my wife and I have been having this discussion for the last two weeks where we've been talking about this idea of like, where is the power of God in the church? Because it seems like we're guilty of swinging one way or the other. It's either all scripture, right? Like it's all truth. That's, we only align with that, and so we become cessationists, which are people that believe the gifts of God, the power, like, is not necessarily for today. We just are going to align ourselves with the word. Or then you see other movements that do what? Swing to the other side, and it becomes all about the spirit and all about the power. And the power and the spirit can lead us to do things outside of the word of God. And yet Jesus says it's about spirit and truth that it's both about scripture and power. And that for the Sadducees, they denied them both. And 
to put this back on you and I today, I just wonder, have we denied them both? Like, are some of us in this room so jaded this morning that we just have totally denied the power of God? Are are some of us in this room, because we've seen Scripture taken so out of context and dealt with so poorly, have we rejected the Scripture's power to actually speak to the condition of our hearts? couldn't help but like prepare this message and think to myself like I always say that I believe that the power of God is evident that he's alive and living that he's doing the same things today that he did 2,000 years ago on this earth and yet I'm as guilty as the next with the fact that that's become a bunch of information trapped in my brain that I'm not sure how to flesh out through my hands and my feet and my mouth. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Um, I want you to think about this this morning. That to deny Jesus as the Son of God is literally to deny the power of God. Likewise, to deny the power of God is literally to deny Jesus as the Son of God. And we as, when we as professed followers of Jesus deny his word and, and we deny his power, I might ask the question, then what is devotion to God all about? What, what is it? Why profess to devote your life to him if you're going to deny the two things that he gave us to live supernatural lives? Will you let go of the formulas that you've made for God? Will you let his word challenge you once again? I mean, I just keep going back to the 17-year-old Chris. Like, will I let his word pierce me like it did then? Will, will I walk in faith in his power like I did at 17 years old? Will, will I take my life and, and literally hold it up as an offering to the Lord and say, speak to this and anything you say, God, I will obey and do. What do you have for me? And when it comes to our lives, what is it that we're building? Like, what are we doing? Where we're living, how we're spending, like, how is God ultimately in control of that? Will you let go of this life and let Jesus literally turn it upside down so that you can have all of him? Does that not sound like a good transaction? Like, I'm flipping this life upside down. Jesus, I want all of you. Or will you hold on so tightly, whether that's to your form of theology, whatever it is, and miss the empowerment, the power of the Spirit in your life? I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and we're going to sing a song together. And this might sound like totally different than we normally um, function. But I, I can't stand up before you guys. So like I, I often will tell people this. There are many people in this room who I've talked to enough to know the things that you're dealing with in your life. And I said, it's interesting to stand on a stage sometime and be like, gosh, I know what you're going through. I know what you're going through. I know what you're going through. I know that there's a real need for the Lord to step in in these areas of your life. And yet what we do is kind of come into this room on a Sunday morning and we save face and want to protect ourselves from anybody knowing that we're actually dealing with anything and that we need the power of God to show up in our life in a way that we just can't do it on our own. And so my question to you this morning is like, what are you going through? Is your heart hard? Like there's some of you in this room that are sick. We as the church should be laying hands on you and praying for you. Maybe you'll be healed, maybe you won't, but that's not going to stop us from praying. There's some of you in this room, your marriages are on the rocks. Like you desperately need the power of God to show up and to heal that marriage, to rebuild something that's been broken apart by the enemy's evil tactics. What a great thing for the church to be praying for, right? Or or breakdowns in relationship. Or there's some of you, like your grief and your pain, the things you've experienced in your life, like 
your mental health, like whatever it is in your life seems all-consuming and there's like nothing that can break in and that can take care of that. And so you live your life in such a way that you deny the power of God because it just seems too big for God to actually deal with. And this morning I'm like, is it? Do we believe that? Do we? It's not rhetorical. Do we believe that? No. (laughs) Nothing is too big for him. He's the God that can move mountains. He's He is, right? He wasn't. It's not that he was. I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and Jacob. He's still today like he was then. Let's pray. Jesus, um, I thank you for your church. And God, I just, I confess to you the areas of my life where at times I've denied your power And at times I've even denied your word because they came against what I wanted to stand for, what I wanted to be about. And I pray for us as a church that we would uphold your word as authoritative, all of it, God. We walk in light of your word being spoke to us through this Bible. God, but we also walk in power We are not powerless beings who just exist on this earth to try to get by and hopefully muster up the strength to try to deal with the situations in life. You've literally offered us your power so that we didn't have to muster anything up. And so I pray that your power would come upon your church. God, that it would be reignited, that our hearts would be lit for you, that they would burn for you, Jesus. And I pray, God, against the the desire in us to strive and try to make happen and try to do things on our own and create our own constructs to make ourselves feel good. But I pray this morning for just humility in us. I pray for the ability to recognize where we've denied your word and denied your power in our life, to humbly come before you this morning and say, Jesus, this whole thing has not looked like I planned, but I need your power and your word to guide me through every step of the I ask that you do that, Jesus. I ask that you'd show up in lives in this room in powerful ways and that we as a church would testify about the power of God in our lives and the ability for his word to correct, challenge, affirm, encourage, and lead us in this life, Jesus. We thank you that one day this life won't matter, that we will spend eternity with you. But in the meantime, God, we desperately need your word and your power to get through this life every day that you give us breath in Jesus.